Turn in your Bibles one more time, if you will, to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. We'll look at verses 11 down to the end, verse 18 today. Just like you, from time I get official letters from all kinds of different organizations or government entities or church uh, um, supervisory people explaining some new program or some change of procedure or something I'm supposed to know. Those things are usually frustrating to read for they're written to address every conceivable issue, uh, whether it applies to me or not. But every once in a while, because often these letters are forwarded to me from somebody who knows that I need to know this, every once in a while, there at the bottom, I find a brief handwritten note that summarizes in a couple of sentences exactly what I need to learn from this letter. What a refreshing treat. Our text this morning is just such a handwritten note. The Apostle Paul has written the epistle to the Galatian churches in which he's carefully argued against some erroneous teaching that's been going on in that church. We've looked at every verse of this epistle trying to figure out what he's talking about and how it applies. But here at the close of this epistle, Paul did what he often did. And that is, he took the pen out of the hand of the scribe who was taking dictation from him and writing it down. And he signed the letter himself in his own handwriting. And in this case, he actually wrote a couple of sentences which summarize the gist of this whole letter, in case we missed it. That's, a great, that's the great text we have before us today. Paul's handwritten note at the end of this letter that went out to many, many churches. Let me read it. Beginning with verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast of your flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. There's a whole string of things here, like all personal notes would have. But let me just focus on the main main thought. Two, Two things I want to say. First is this. Put no hope in performance religion. Put no hope in performance religion. You and I live in a performance-crazed world. We generally don't prize people that have great ideas or great insight. Even people who live exemplary lives, we may find them quaint, but pretty much irrelevant to us. What matters in our culture is performance. What did you accomplish? Not what is true, but what did you do? Not what's beautiful, but what works. In the churches of ancient Galatia, the issue was whether or not Christians needed to be circumcised. That's not an issue of the church in our day. Ah, but performance religion, which is what the circumcision debate was all about. 
is alive and well today, leading many into a hopeless kind of faith. Let me explain. Think of the sales pitch that was being made to the Galatian believers, calling them to be circumcised. They were told, trusting Jesus is good, it's just not enough. You need to do more. Specifically, you need to be circumcised. But then what was circumcision about? What did that do? Well, it was the gate into Jewish observance of the whole law. That was, just, that was stated explicitly by the proponents of circumcision in Acts 15, verse 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the whole law. You see, this was all about performance religion, doing the right external rituals and then keeping the law well enough to earn God's favor. But even beyond this agenda for the new converts, think about the motivation of these false teachers who were teaching this. According to verse 12, they were pursuing this cause in order to make a good impression outwardly. They were trying to make a name for themselves as successful ministers. They were trying to impress their Jewish peers by how many circumcisions they performed. Oh, but it was even worse than that. They were doing all they were doing in an effort to avoid persecution. We assume that the persecution of the early church came from the Romans, but that's not true. Primarily, it was instigated by the Jewish leaders, as in the case of of Christ. But these false teachers had found a loophole to avoid such persecution. Even if you claim to believe in Jesus, you were not so much of a threat as long as you were circumcised and keeping the traditions of the Jewish law. So they were trying to have it both ways, to believe in Jesus and to placate those who hated him. You see, the practices of these false teachers was all about performance, religion, doing what was expected, preaching a gospel that didn't step on toes, all to gain popular acclaim and to keep themselves out of trouble, keep themselves from facing opposition. Any of that sound familiar? It should, for performance religion is everywhere in our day. We see the performance mentality in liberal church circles, where it's all about the teachings of Jesus, but never about his death on the cross, where it's all about social justice concerns, but never about sharing the gospel, about what do we do in regard to God's justice that will condemn us, It's all about actions which are environmentally friendly and politically correct, but not about fidelity to the Word of God. But we also see this performance of religion in conservative Christian circles, where it's all about keeping the law. It's all about maintaining good order. It's all about maintaining a proper image, a good testimony. It's all about our own efforts, about having devotions every day and tithing our money and filling our schedule with church events and voting Republican or better yet, Libertarian. But the grace of God often becomes just a theological, con- theological concept to be argued rather than the way we deal with broken, defiled people. Performance religion is everywhere, but in whatever shape or form it appears, it's all about that which is external, 
not what's in the heart. It's all about what we do to earn God's favor, not what Jesus did on the cross for us. Indeed, the cross is an often neglected subject, which brings us to our second point. Hope only in the crucified Jesus. Put no hope in performance religion. Hope only in the cross of Christ. Clearly, the one verse that dwarfs all others in this passage is verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the only time the Apostle Paul said such a thing. When he went to Corinth, he wrote, I was determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Clearly, the Apostle Paul had hope only in the crucified Jesus. So let me pose uh, and then answer three questions as we think about what all this means. First of all, so why is the cross so important? Why is the cross so important? We tend to promote exactly the opposite point of view, you know. We tend to say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you, it's, it's how you live that counts. By the way, that's performance, religion, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you believe, it's what you do. So because people do not like an emphasis on the cross, we would rather talk about something else. We'll talk about the teachings of Jesus. I was reading Tim Keller's sermon on this, and he makes an interesting observation. He says, Paul does not say, God forbid that I should boast, except in the Sermon on the Mount. He does not say, God forbid that I should boast, except in the Ten Commandments. He also does not say, God forbid that I should boast, except in Jesus walking on the water. No, he says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Christ. And Jesus agrees. By his own testimony, the most important thing he came to do was to die on the cross. As his death on the cross became clearly inevitable and loomed large before him just days away, Jesus commented in in John 12, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Well, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, this hour is the very reason I came. And we see the importance of the cross even in the way the Gospels are structured. For example, the Gospel of John has 21 chapters. Chapters 1 to 11 cover virtually the whole life of Christ. Chapters 12 to 21, about half of the book, tells us of the last week about his dying on the cross. Again, Matthew, chapter 16, not even halfway through the gospel account. There we read, Jesus began to show his disciples how he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed, and on the third day rise from the dead. And then the rest of the gospel, more than half of the book, is tell us about how that all came about. Clearly the cross is the most important thing. But the question remains, why is it so important? Well, it's because what happened on the cross was what God did to save us. We we always want to focus on what we are doing, but none of it works. We have had or had access to great moral teaching. Why do we still sin then? Do we need more teaching? 
Would more teaching really cure our sin problem? No. We need someone to come and destroy sin. Separate us from the things that come so easy to us. Remove the consequences of our rebellion against God. Destroy the things that hold us captive. Reconcile us to God and give us new life. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. There he became our substitute and he paid the penalty that we owe. There he struck the decisive blow against Satan and death and hell that we might escape their clutches. As Paul says in verse 14, there on the cross Jesus cut us free from the sinful world and cut the sinful world free from us. In other words, our slavery to sin was defeated when Jesus died in our place. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. It was finished. God had accomplished what we could never do. He delivered us. He saved us. He set us free. The decisive battle was won. Our sin was atoned for. Eternal life was secured. And when he rose from the dead on the third day, that eternal life became a reality for those who trust in Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful truth. What joy to our defeated, terrified, cowering souls. Which raises another question. So why is the cross so offensive? If it's such good news, why is it so offensive? From New Testament times till today, the cross has always been offensive. 1 Corinthians 1 notes that, quote, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And even today in our culture, have you noticed that anywhere that a cross might have been raised, for who knows what reason, there's somebody organizing to get it taken down. Why? Why is it so offensive? How can a symbol of God's grace be so hated? Well, the cross is offensive because it's a monument to mankind's wretchedness. Think about it. On the cross, Jesus died for us. You know, a person would have to be unbelievably wicked for his sin to demand the kind of death that Jesus died on the cross. What's in view on the cross is not just our crime against God, not just a capital crime against God, but a vicious, cruel, diabolical, monstrous crime that demands the guilty suffer. But who thinks of himself as depraved and deserving of such punishment? To the contrary, we work hard to accept ourselves. We repeatedly affirm we're good, just like we are. The cross is also offensive because it's a tribute to mankind's impotence. Not just our wretchedness, but our impotence. You only have to listen for a moment to the pop psychology of the day to hear the word something like, you can do anything you want if you believe in yourself. The cross says, oh no, you can't. The cross says that unless someone go to such extreme measure as dying in your place, your life is hopelessly lost and you are powerless to change it. And the cross is also offensive because it shows that we're all in the same boat. We hate being lumped with everybody else. As if there's nothing distinctive and unique about me. 
as if I were no better than the worst criminal in the world. But that's exactly what God says. There's no difference. There's no difference. At least three times in the Bible we find these exact words. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Oh, make no mistake, the cross confronts us with our lostness. And before we come to delight in God's grace shown to us there, we will have to deal with the offense of the cross. We will have to own the truth that it speaks about us. Which brings us to our last question. So what does it mean to boast in the cross? Keller says, what you boast in is the center of your personality. Goes on to quote Martin Luther, who said, when you're attacked, when you fail, how do you defend yourself to yourself? When you fail, what do you say to yourself? That's what you're boasting in. So we read in James 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. In other words, if you're someone who has a lowly position in life, a dirty, despised, nothing position, you can boast in the cross of Christ and say, but I know I am loved more than life itself. I am cherished by my Savior. Christ gave himself to me. It may look like I'm a filthy, dirty, whatever it is, but I am a child of the King because of Jesus. And if you're rich and everyone thinks you're something, you don't have to believe the lie and become arrogant. Instead, you boast in the cross of Christ saying, you know, when I was a phony, deceiving the whole world concerning my greatness, Lord, you knew better. And you humbled me that I might be exalted. You stripped me of my self-centered self-sufficiency that I might know you. And that's my glory. Not my money. Not my stuff. The Apostle Paul spoke this way in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation I had seen, A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Well, you see, there's no room for us to complain. Lord, I don't deserve this trouble. I'm better than this. For the cross of Christ by which you're saved argues that you deserve much less than what you have, actually. 
that you're not better at all. But God is not rubbing your nose in your failures, quite the opposite. From the cross, he says to you, I loved you when you were despicable, when you were absolutely unlovely. I gave my life for you when you were not even grateful for it. And now I have forgiven you and adopted you to be my very own. And when you fail and are broken and realize how wretched you still are, he again says, come to me. You are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. If you confess your sin, I'm faithful and just to forgive you your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to restore your soul. This morning I call you to listen to the word of the Spirit given through the Apostle. Rest only in the crucified Jesus. Finally, in verse 17, after all the discussion in this book about being marked by circumcision, the Apostle Paul has an interesting thing to say. He seems to say, you want to know what kind of marks on your body really count? You're talking all about circumcision, that mark. You want to know what really counts? The marks which I bear. The scars from being stoned and left for dead. The scars from being flogged and repeatedly beaten with rods. The marks on my wrists, my ankles, from the chains. Don't talk to me about circumcision. That doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel of grace poured out on the cross as Jesus' hands and feet and side were pierced for me and his blood was spilt on the ground to pay for my sin. The scars, the marks which associate me with Jesus dying, those are the ones I proudly wear. And so we wrap up this book with these reminders. Put no hope in performance religion. It's not about the rituals. It's not about what you can do for yourself. Hope only in the crucified Jesus. And it ends with this benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this treasure which we call the epistle to the Galatians which addresses our assumption that true religion is what we do, that our salvation is based in what we can accomplish through outward signs and through our labors to keep the law. We thank you, Father, that you have addressed that and have pointed us to Jesus, to the inward reality that he works in us, to the cleansing, to the work of Jesus on the cross. Oh, Father, may we learn with the Apostle Paul to glory in the cross and to rest in that alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.